Welcome back to the Anglo Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. It's summer December 1901. General Jan Smuts is on the run in the Cape Colony, being chased by tens of thousands of British troops who are fixating on the fact that they don't seem to be able to pin down this mercurial general. With him is one of our war narrators, Denise Reitz, or rather was with him until he became separated in late November, and since then has been following Smuts and trying to stay alive. This week we'll hear how he stumbles into another series of largely self-inflicted moments of terror. Reitz has a propensity for falling asleep at precisely the wrong time, and as you'll hear, his escapades in the Cape include another variant. It was close to the Kericha River in the now eastern Cape, where Reitz last rode with smuts. Then he found himself with a rear guard unit of seven other men who failed to join up with the general after fighting a skirmish with the British. They were laid up at a friendly Boer farm in the district, and the next day thought they'd rejoin the Boer commander, but it was not to be. General Smuts must have ridden all night, for although we could see for half a day's journey, he and his men had vanished, and difficult weeks were to elapse before we found them again. He managed to change from his British khaki uniform, which was a death sentence. Remember that Lord Kitchener had issued orders any Boer found wearing British uniforms would be shot as spies. The eight began to ride northwestly, and as they went, local farmers told them that a large British column was ahead, also following smuts. Not for the first time, the small unit of Boers followed a British column following a commander. William Conradi, who was with me at the 17th Lancers fight, as the oldest and most experienced of our party, took charge. The others were Albert van Rooyen, Albert Pinar, Cornelius Brink, W. Papers, W. van der Merwe, and a boy named Michael Dupree, who were all Transvaalers, except for the commander, Conradi, who hailed from the Western Cape. All good, brave fellows, says Reitz. Three days into the smuts chase, Reitz found himself riding point ahead of the others, watching the English, when a scout detached himself and rode back along the road near where Reitz hid. I lay in wait for him behind some trees, and as he passed, I leapt out and knocked him from his horse with the butt of my rifle. The man turned out to be a coy soldier. Many were being used by the British as scouts and dispatch riders. He was more terrified than hurt. The man handed over a dispatch hidden in his boot, which was addressed to Colonel Scoble, informing him that Smuts had crossed the Swartbergen Mountains into the district of Otsun the night before. The dispatch also mentioned that Smuts had been reinforced by nearly 100 men. Which was a mystery to us, says Reitz. But we found out afterwards that a roving band of about 50 men had joined him the day before. They were the remnants of Commander Skippers' commando, the man who had been executed by the British after he was captured as a Cape citizen. Reitz stripped the messenger of his horse, rifle and ammunition, but left him fully clothed, not taking his boots and uniform. They were now fully aware of how deadly it was to dress as a British soldier. Then they sent him on his way. Reitz and the others crossed the Swartbergen, which took two days as the going was dreadfully rough. There they made a bad decision to follow the newly hacked path through Meyerings Pass, knowing the British had built it. That night they ran into a British scouting party. We were so mixed up with them that no one could shoot, he writes. For a few seconds we were milling about. Neither side could be quite certain whether we were dealing with friend or foe, and no one uttered a word for fear of precipitating trouble. Then we heard William Conradi shout to us in English to 
break away. So we disengaged ourselves and turned back into the rough while the English clattered away along the road without a shot having been fired. Later they sat in the horses, once more looking south towards the sea, a grey haze in the distance. It was dusk, and far below in a valley they could see the light of a farmhouse. They were hungry. They hadn't eaten for 24 hours or slept. Being the youngest, he and Michael Dupree managed to convince the others to allow the two of them to head down and find something. It was sunrise by the time they arrived at the building, which was owned by an Englishman called Holm. He gave us a generous meal, including an omelette made from ostrich eggs, which we did full justice. The farmer appeared neither friend nor foe. He felt obliged to help travellers in distress. Then they took four or five ostrich eggs, as well as some meat and bread, back up the mountain to their friends, who by now had begun to move down the Swartbergen themselves. Seven hours later they rendezvoused. Their friends then ate a fine meal. Conradi ordered them back into the saddle and head towards the town of Oatshorn. By eleven that night they slipped from their horses in an orchard and fell fast asleep. But Conradi was moving quickly in an attempt to find smuts and early the next morning they were off once more. As we made our way down the valley all that day, we were comforted with news of genital smuts at every farmhouse. As we'll hear, their road back was only just beginning. Later they were told two other boers were also tracking smuts, Edgar Dunker and Nicholas Swart. They were on foot after losing their horses in one of the many firefights and skirmishes around the Kricha River. We hurried on, intending to catch up before halting, but after dark we lost the tracks owing to the stony soil. The next morning they spotted a cloud of dust ahead, and were convinced it was Smuts and his commando. Congratulating each other for surviving, they cantered towards the dust cloud. But disappointment was in store, for, as we hurried down the road, a woman ran from the field with outstretched arms to warn us that those men were English troops. Smuts had also got wind of the column and escaped under cover of darkness, but no one knew in which direction. The men, riding together behind, were depressed. Then, in a bizarre moment for Rates, he bumped into an Englishman who was a relative by the name of Rex. He couldn't remember the man's first name when he wrote his memoirs down in 1902, but recounts, A lineal descendant of George Rex, the morganatic son of King George III by Hannah Lightfoot, a Quakeress. George Rex had been sent out to South Africa in 1775 and given a large tract of land at Neisner on condition that he did not again trouble his august parent. His descendants lived there ever since, and one of them had married Rex's mother's brother. They were cousins. Rex and I spent an hour discussing family ties, and before I left, he insisted upon giving me a new pair of boots as mine were considerably the worse for wear. Rex perhaps regretted that later, as he was arrested and imprisoned by the military, as well as being fined for comforting the king's enemy. Which amused me greatly, writes Rex, although I was sorry that I landed him in trouble. There was even more trouble coming shortly. A few days later, the men riding hard had almost caught up with smuts. Their hurry was going to get them in trouble. They were still in a jumbled range of mountains travelling close to the sea. The area is very picturesque, but it is also not ideal for men on horseback, as they were being funnelled along the many valleys that ran almost parallel to the coast. It was in one of these valleys that they picked out Smuts's lost trail, which led them to the door of a large homestead. 
Rates and one of the men by the name of Paper went forward to see what they could find out. By midnight we were hammering at the door. It belonged to another Englishman who was not happy to see them. My God, he exclaimed, first come the Boers this morning and slaughter my sheep, then come the British who kill more sheep instead of catching the Boers, and now I am hauled out of bed at this time of night by more Boers. After he calmed down, the man gave his name as Mr. Guest. That surely was sarcastic, renaming himself as the guest of his own farm. Nevertheless, he became affable and roused his servants who provided a large late supper for the men. It appeared that Dunker and Swart had caught up with Smuts at the farm. Having eaten well and obtained as much information as we could, we persuaded our host to give us enough food for our friends and started back. He heaved a sigh of relief as having rid himself of the Boers finally. But had he known that his troubles were only beginning, says Rates. The two youngsters rode back to their colleagues and arrived just before daybreak. Conradi then ordered them onwards before the others could eat. It was the dawn of what was going to be a most lively day. They led the horses down the mountain and passed Mr. Guest's guest house. Things were going to heat up in more ways than one, for, waiting close by, were two hundred English mounted troops riding hard for the farm. Rates and papers' presence had been reported by spies, more than likely Mr. Guest himself. For they were riding like men with a set purpose, said Rate. As the Boers watched, the unit split in two and surrounded both a house and the orchard nearby. The Boers moved into a thick ravine and kept an eye on the British. When they drew blank at the farm, they deployed along the foot of the slope on which we were and splitting into more parties began a systematic search. Rates and his friends were too well hidden to be found even though some of the troopers came within 100 yards of where they lay. We did not fire for we knew if we did it would all be over for us, so we lay hidden, meaning only to shoot when there was no other alternative. They waited, but the British were going nowhere, and seemed to know that the Boers were extremely close. A man on a white-faced Argentine came trotting up to within twenty yards of us. He dismounted to examine the path for hoof marks, and was so close to us that had one of our horses jingled a bit, he must have heard it. The men held their breath, but the trooper climbed back on his horse and rode away. After what seemed an age, the hunt died down and the soldiers drifted back to the farmhouse. Poor Mr. Guest was once again forced to hand over food and water, but Rates and his friends were now stuck. Two hours later and the British remained where they were. We saw the men flinging oat sheaves from a loft and chasing poultry, and I could not help feeling sorry for Mr. Guest who was once more being put under the harrow, and not for the last time, as it proved. The slightly comical moment continued. When the English eventually rode away, four hours later, the Boers emerged from their hiding and trotted back to Mr. Guest's farmhouse. With the soldiers only just going through the garden beyond, he looked as if he'd seen an apparition. Of course, the Boers asked for more food. He seemed on the verge of a fit, Rates observes dryly. Finally, Mr. Guest chuckled and gave them bread and more meat before they left. And now they made a big mistake. They had ridden into a cul-de-sac instead of making for the wider country. They let their guard down and Rates made a second and much more serious mistake. He turned his little Arab 
pony saddled as it was into a field to nibble on the sprouts instead of keeping his horse close by. Remember, although he was highly experienced, he was still young, under 21. He had vast worldly experience, but little wisdom at this stage. He was also suffering from exhaustion. I sought out a shady spot in the lee of a thorn fence, and without telling the others where I was, fell sound asleep. This is somewhat of a gobsmacking thing to do with the British crawling all over the countryside. Some time later, he was awakened by a number of English soldiers standing nearby on their horses, blazing away with their rifles at his seven companions, riding away down the valley for their lives. I had only myself to blame, he admits. His only means of escape, his little Arab pony, was standing in the middle of the field, thoughtfully chewing on grass in full view of the firing soldiers. They hadn't spotted rates, who managed to pull the thorn bushes aside and realised his pony had walked closer to where he lay. The fire had alarmed him, for he was restlessly tossing his head and snuffling the air. So I called to quiet him and wormed my way through a weak spot in the fence, ran up to where he stood, quivering with excitement. Rates leapt into the saddle and galloped towards the small gate in the corner of the field. The English spotted him and opened fire, killing his horse, flinging Rates over his head. He grabbed his rifle and sprinted for the farmhouse. There, six men stood, and in his panic, he thought they were his friends. They were British soldiers. Isaac came within 30 yards of them. One stepped forward and, leveling his rifle, called on me to halt. Instead, Reds made a dash for the stables, with more British troops emerging behind, who fired at him but missed. Volleys came crashing through the trees as I ran, but I emerged safely on the other side into hammocky ground. His guardian angel appeared to be very busy right then. The undulating nature of the ground meant the British couldn't get a clear shot of him. But a bullet tore into his right boot, slashing his foot. However, his adrenaline was pumping and he felt nothing. He looked back and saw Mr. Guest gesticulating. Whether he was urging on the men to my capture or protesting against the crowning disaster of a battle on his doorstep, there was no time to consider. Rates was in one of the tightest spots of the war. His friends were gone, and he slid down a gully running to a stream. It wasn't the first or last time he'd used this trick to get away. But he knew that running down the stream bed would be fatal. Instead, he sought out a hiding place on the bank opposite. I found a spot on the opposite side where the rains had washed out a shallow runnel, and crawling up this went flat on my face into the bushes beyond, which stood just high enough to conceal a prostrate man. Yeah, he crawled on his stomach for 50 yards deeper into the thicket. The British searched downstream, then decided he'd run upstream. The sun was beginning to set when they gave up and returned to the farmhouse. Where presently their campfires shone out, indicating that Mr. Guest was once again to be an unwilling host. Rates was slightly wounded, and he had a long acacia thorn stuck the entire length of his palm, which caused him agony. He limped in the darkness and as though, by magic, heard the sound of a hymn and the wheeze of a harmonium or an accordion as it's known. Such as stands in almost every Dutch farmhouse, says Rates. He knocked at the farmhouse door. There was a hush within. Then a shuffle of feet and the door was opened. A whole family was peering at me from within. When I told them who I was, they almost dragged me into the house so eager were they to help. He was bloody and disheveled. A very young man with a very long career in war already. The women wept with pity as they removed his boot and extracted the thorn from his palm. They bandaged his wounds 
and prepared a meal with coffee. The kindly people almost quarreled for the right to serve me, he says. But of course, they were in danger of all being seized and jailed for helping this youngster. The patriarch of the family, an old man of 70, insisted on acting as his guide that night, turning away his two sons who wanted to help. A grain bag was packed with food, and the two, the old Dutch farmer and the young Boer fighter, set off immediately. The old man seemed to know more than he was letting on, for many hours later, in clear moonlight, he wished him Godspeed and turned back. Rates was at the bottom of a ravine, and there in the sand he found hoof marks. I recognized the slightly malformed tracks of Michael de Prier's pony. He had miraculously found the tracks of his seven companions. That cheered him up, and he followed the spoor. After some miles, they branched into a smaller cliff, and he followed the hoofprints in the dusty cattle path with ease, even at night. It was dawn when he caught up to his seven friends. At last, as the day was breaking, I heard the wicker of a horse, and going forward carefully, found all seven men fast asleep beneath the trees. They were astonished to see me, as they had been certain I was either dead or taken. But there was a big problem. Of their nine horses, six had been shot dead during their escape, and they had lost most of their saddles, cooking tins, and blankets. After a few hours of rest, Rates and the seven others found themselves in the Kamenasi River area, which was full of friendly Dutch farmers, who resupplied them with cooking tins, blankets, and some saddles and food. But they could not take horses. There were none available, so five of the eight walked, including Rates with his damaged foot. But they were now stuck in a valley full of General French's cavalry and mounted infantry. It was literally teeming with soldiers who knew the Boers of Smuts Commander were nearby, and they were determined to catch or shoot a few. Now and again they heard the boom of the guns as General French chased Smuts, so they knew how close the fighting was. William Conradi, though, was a canny fighter. After some days of this, he realized there was no way they could continue and proposed the small group turn across the Swartbergen back into the Karoo country from which they'd come. Once they'd put the mountain range between themselves and the British, they could travel parallel to the range and keep in touch with the Smuts commander. Before this, they were to meet a most unusual family that Rates promptly christened the Swiss family Robinson, an Englishman who married an African woman and his children living in an oasis of peace in a valley surrounded by mountains. It was a valley into which no one traveled. The alienation and solitary life meant they had no idea of what was going on 20 miles away, let alone in the Anglo-Boer War. But now we will call a halt and return to this mysterious family next week. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have time. Send me a message through my Twitter account, which is at Des Latham, or the website, abwarpodcast.com. Until next week and next year, goodbye. <laughs> O bring me terug naar die Oud-Transvaal, daar waar my Sari woon. Daar onder in die mil is by die groen door een boom, daar woon my Sari Mare. Daar onder in die mil is by die groen door een boom, daar woon my Sari Mare.